You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cyberwire X, a series of specials designed to highlight important security topics affecting organizations around the world. Today's episode is titled The ABCs of Cybersecurity for the Education Sector. We'll explore the challenges facing school districts when it comes to cybersecurity, and we'll hear from practitioners about how they're tackling serious issues in a time of rapid change and great uncertainty. A program note, each CyberWire X special features two segments. In the first part of the show, we'll hear from an industry expert on the topic at hand. And in the second part, we'll hear from our show sponsor for their point of view. And speaking of sponsors, a word from our sponsor, Deep Instinct. Deep Instinct is changing cybersecurity by harnessing the power of deep learning, the most advanced form of AI, to prevent threats in zero time. Unlike detection and response-based solutions, which wait for the attack before reacting, Deep Instinct's solution works preemptively. By applying end-to-end deep learning to cybersecurity, files are automatically analyzed prior to execution, keeping customers protected in zero time. The outcome is resilient prevention that provides consistent security day in, day out. Learn more about the benefits of incorporating Deep Instinct into your cybersecurity defense by visiting deepinstinct.com. That's deepinstinct.com. And we thank Deep Instinct for sponsoring our show. Yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting. We have a state law that requires every public organization to be on our state network. That's Kevin Ford, Chief Information Security Officer for the state of North Dakota. And so it is a, it is a very interesting setup, right? You have um, large uh, state agencies, um, as well as very, very small city governments, town governments, uh, county governments, um, all required to be on the same uh, network and commingled there. Um, so, you know, the uh, security of all of the different organizations is very, very concerning because we're all sort of commingled. Um, so there's a lot of different interesting network architecture and uh, network security practices that we have to uh, engage in as as well as really trying to focus on the endpoints of different agencies. And so one of the things we're looking at is cyber hygiene standards uh, for every organization. But as you know, every organization is different and they have different levels of funding. Um, and so, you know, there are K-12 organizations out there where their cybersecurity guy is their IT guy, who's also the football coach and the bus driver and teaches social studies. So it's it's one of those things we also have to be very cognizant that, you know, the budgets and the sizes of these organizations um, are, are also very uh, impactful to the, to the cybersecurity posture, not just of their K-12 organization, but of the whole state. So how do you come at a problem like that? How do you break it down into manageable units? Yeah, so it's a very it's a very difficult problem and I I'm not sure that we have the 100% solution right now. Uh, but we are uh, developing outreach. Um, and so I've been in this position about 6 months and one of the key things I've done and one of the things I've uh, asked to uh, 
for my team to accomplish is to really in- increase our outreach um, so that we you know we know who's in the uh, IT coordinator or cybersecurity position for each k-12 organization um, we know what their struggles are we understand where they're coming from from a budgetary standpoint and from a cybersecurity standpoint so with that in mind we've done a, a number of things we're looking at creating a policy for the state network that goes over basic just kind of cyber hygiene stuff. And so that's very, very basic stuff, things you would expect everyone would have. But, you know, we're finding in the K-12 sector that a lot of these things uh, they either can't afford or they just never thought to have or haven't had the uh, time to deploy. So we're issuing guidance and strategy documents and policy, the administrative side, um, to make them aware, hey, this is what's required in the cybersecurity sphere. Uh, And then really trying to listen as they come back to us with their problems and try to figure out how to troubleshoot those uh, together. And so one of the other things that we're, we're doing is starting to provide cybersecurity tool sets uh, for free. And, and those can be either managed centrally uh, by our security organization, or um, in some cases, you know, we kind of create a little security operations center within the larger security operations center um, so that their IT personnel and their cybersecurity personnel still have the necessary context around what they're, what they're doing, how their segment is operating, and, and you know, how the different assets uh, within their organization are protected. Yeah, I would imagine that, that it must be a priority for you to make sure that um, you're considered to be a collaborative partner rather rather than I because I, I could see some this becoming kind of an adversarial thing you know that the folks from on high are saying we have to do these things and they're far away and they don't know what our challenges are or our budgets and and that sort of thing so I would I, am I right that a big part of of your job is 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 uh, fostering that sense of uh, well community yeah absolutely um, and. You know, I I won't claim 100% uh, effectiveness at that, right? Sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, people are upset. You know, here's here's the state government coming into our little, you know, our little organization and telling us how to do things. Um, And, you know, in some cases, they're upset because we're asking them to do things that they may not have resources to do. And in other cases, they're very large organizations that have a, a ton of resources and think that they know better. And maybe in some cases they do. And there are very real logical um, issues. Um, sometimes the uh, the cadence at which the state can keep up with requests for whitelisting or blacklisting, so on and so forth, is maybe not as uh, as quick as what these organizations would really like. And so, you know, there are there are very very real and meaningful issues that that we're still trying to work out um it's not something that you know is is perfect right now and i don't want to say you know we're doing the best job in in the world right now but we are starting to tackle those issues and i think just the identification of those issues is is the first step and so we've identified i think a significant amount of those issues and and are starting uh, to have a dialogue with not just our K-12 organizations, but our, our counties and our cities as well, um, to try to get uh, kind of a unified understanding of, of what we're doing, how we should proceed, and what the state strategy is going to be moving forward on this. Can you, can you give us some insights, some examples of, of some of the things that you're coming at, some of the things that you're trying to, uh, to approach? 
Um, yeah, so I mean, some of the some of the conflicts are obviously uh, things along the lines of the tools that we are providing the organizations maybe do not match the native environments. Uh, for instance, we're on Palo Alto and they may be on Cisco or something like that. Um, other, mm. other issues are, hey, you know, we have this kind of really niche software that needs to run and we need to have it whitelisted. Can you whitelist it just for us and not the entire state? Or can you, you know, blacklist this just for us or not the entire state? So it's some interesting issues to try to figure out as far as our architecture is concerned and as far as our the capabilities we're offering are concerned. And and I suppose, I mean, you, you've got your own limitations of the resources that you have at hand as well. Uh, we do. Um, I think, fortunately, our leadership is very, very good in this regard. Um, our, our governor is considered to be a IT-forward governor. He was a Microsoft executive and chairman of the board or on the board of Atlassian. So certainly um, from the tech side, and he approaches everything uh, with, I, I believe, a forward-thinking, technology-oriented um, solutions approach. Um, with that being the case, we do have a very, very robust cybersecurity organization here in the, in the state of North Dakota. Um, I think probably one of the better organizations uh, that exist in state government. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, know any any organization quite frankly that says um if you ask their CISO that they had uh, enough support or enough um enough assets to get the job done so we do find ourselves you know prioritizing uh the work that we're doing um and and making some sacrifices in in some corners in some regards what about uh, you know some of the the non-technical things like user awareness training and and so forth i mean is that is that a part of the types of things that you're promoting? It is. Um, it certainly would be it would be one of the hygiene issues that we bring up in our our statewide standards and policies and guidance uh, for the K twelve organizations. But it's also a uh, capability that we're looking to provide. I'm, I'm trying to be very cognizant of asking uh, K twelve organizations to do something and then not providing them any support to do it. So it is something that we do a, a very good job of, I believe, in state government, and we're looking to uh, be able to provide those capabilities at low cost or no cost to our K-12 organizations as well. How much does uh, automation play a role in the things that you do? The, 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 I'm thinking of the scale that you run at. Is that a an important part of, of maximizing the, the resources that you have? Yeah, automation is uh, tremendously important for us. Um, we have a we have a team of about 30 um, cybersecurity uh, analysts and uh, professionals within the state. Um, and that's probably the largest cybersecurity team that exists within our state, whether that's um, in private organizations or whether that's in the government. So to put that, I guess, into context, we have about 250,000 endpoints on our state network at any given time. Uh, so mm. trying to tackle that uh, with a uh, with a crew of about 30 is very, very tough. And so one of the things we're really, really pushing uh, in the state of North Dakota is the development of um, automated processes. And so to that end, we have um, security orchestration and automation tools um, that we've put in place that really, really help our analysts kind of get out of uh, the weeds doing kind of 
day-to-day grind type work, um, we can automate the responses for those now. And now our analysts focus their time on, I would say, uh, events that are maybe a little more significant um, or doing uh, more in-depth investigations into a, to events than they could otherwise. So that area, we're really pushing automation, but we're also pushing automation in the uh, people processes as well. We're looking at things like um, account management or or even our GRC processes um, and looking at those and, and trying to map them out, trying to make them more efficient, and then bringing a robotic process automation into the picture so that we can also free up uh, time of other security personnel who maybe are not kind of on the on the front lines, uh, but also need to uh, perform a very important role as far as preventing um, and managing cyber risk. So uh, we're really embracing automation here. I think it's one of the most important tools and uh, biggest weapons that we have in our arsenal against cyber risk. What sort of advice uh, do you have or tips do you have for folks who may be in a similar position as you, you know, perhaps a uh, an organization that might not be uh, as as far along the path as you are or may not have the support from high up the way you do. Any words of wisdom? Yeah, you know, my, my number one piece of advice um, would be to communicate. I think communication is always very, very important in cybersecurity, but I think it's more so in organizations that are decentralized, like maybe uh, the state of North Dakota is, right, where we have where we have all sorts of different governments and different agencies and, and um, particularly the three branches of government also. Communication is key there. Um, but on a, I guess, a, a more technical level, I would say if, if you're maturing your organization, look at your workflows, look at the ability, I guess, of your operational security guys to put into action the lessons that are learned um, by your risk management teams, whether that's a governance risk or compliance team or whether that's um, system administrators on the ground, right? Uh, You want to be able, as best you can as a security operations center, to ingest the understanding of the organization and drive down incidents uh, and kind of save your organization time and money by preventing rather than just responding. Our thanks to Kevin Ford, Chief Information Security Officer for the state of North Dakota, for joining us. Up next, we'll be hearing from Steve Salinas from Deep Instinct, the sponsor of this show, and Matthew Fredrickson from the Council Rock School District. We'll hear from Matthew first. The Council Rock School District, uh, we're located in southeast Pennsylvania, There are 500 school districts in the state, and we are sometimes the 11th, sometimes the 12th largest school district. Uh, We have roughly 11,000 students and about 1,300 staff. We're in 18 buildings spread out over 72 square miles. And my entire IT department, including myself and my secretary, consists of nine people. We support about 13,000 users on a daily basis. And with the COVID-19, not just the users, but the users' household networks as well which has been a a challenge for us. My biggest problem is that um, there are few environments like a school district where you, in most businesses, when when you're worried about security threats, you're thinking about threats from the outside getting into your network. And you're doing a little bit, you're concerned about that disgruntled employee 
or perhaps that uh, insider who decides to, you know, sell intellectual property. But there are fewer environments where you're protecting the inside of the network in the same fashion you protect the outside of your network. Because half of my population are trying to hack me all the time. And we give them computers and put them on the network and say, here, do this. <laughs> they watch YouTube videos and they come in and they try it. Now, having said that, I, I'm okay with that. And the reason I'm okay with that is I'd much rather they try and fail on my network where they're not going to get arrested and carted off to jail than if they try that on their college network or a work network. Um, what we do when we find it is we have a little conversation with the student and their parent or guardian and explain to them that that's considered a third-degree felony in the state of Pennsylvania and could lead up to seven years in prison. Um, usually when I have that conversation with the parents, uh, I don't have any trouble with those kids again. So what really concerns me about endpoint protection is that I can put as much technology in place as I want, but we know that at the end of the day, cybersecurity is 20% technology and 80% people. So I'm afraid that that person's going to click on that link that they shouldn't or, tr or somehow get to that website that they shouldn't and invite a threat actor into my environment. So recognizing that I don't have the staff to staff a SOC and to constantly be looking at what's going on in my network, I had to find wherever possible tools that could not only do that for me, but give me the alerts that I wanted. So we implemented a SIM, um, but I still didn't have anything that I felt was doing a really good job of real behavioral analytics. Um, I knew that it, it didn't go far enough. I wanted, I wanted another product that could watch memory and watch what the user's action, actions were. And I've said this over and over again, as I started to look, Deep Instinct kind of fell in my lap and did exactly what I needed it to do, in, in my opinion. Um, so when we're doing the proof of concept, I installed it on some of my servers that if it impacted performance, the users wouldn't scream too loud and I'd be able to remove it. There was zero impact to the performance on the servers. So I'm like, all right, let me try it on all my servers, because that's the kind of guy I am, right? So I <laughs> deployed it to all my servers and there was no impact to performance. And I'm like, this, this is just too good to be true. It's going to bog up my workstations. Did not bog up my workstations. I've deployed it everywhere on everything and have had zero impact performance on any of the machines. I think that's really one of the one of the, the main concerns, as Matt mentioned. That's Steve Salinas. He's head of product marketing at Deep Instinct. When you're starting to talk about adding things to your endpoints or your servers is, is the performance. Because we're all familiar with the old days of traditional AV solutions that when, when they would spin up and they would start scanning your machine, you might as well walk away and get a cup of coffee. The machine became basically unusable for however long that scan took. So in the next generation type of solutions, and we kind of consider ourselves like the third wave of, of solutions, and I can talk more about that in a minute, performance impact is, is one, of the, one of our top priorities. So one of the ways that we limit our performance impact is in the way that that deep brain, the deep brain, what we call it, that's our, our deep learning static analysis and even our behavioral analysis, how it works on the endpoints. So it is deployed in an agent, but the agent is small. It doesn't consume a lot of space and it's, it just sits there until it needs to do something. So we're not, we're not doing constant scanning. We're, we're looking for, I'll, I'll talk about it in two ways. So when we talk about our static file analysis, this is where the deep brain, the deep learning brain, is analyzing uh, files. It's looking as files come onto the machine or move around the machine. 
So at that point, when it when it detects that, that that's occurring, that's when the, the static analysis occurs. And under between 20 and 50 milliseconds, it's able to make a decision if the file is malicious or benign, if it's okay to run or if it should be quarantined. And it can do it that quickly because we're not, when we deploy that deep learning brain, it's already been pre-trained. So we're not consuming any of these, the computer resources to train that model. It's been trained, and we can talk more about that later if you want, but mm. it's been trained on millions and millions of files. And it's highly accurate. The same thing with the behavioral analysis. It just sits waiting. It's sitting and waiting for suspicious actions that give the system the indicators that it might be ransomware or some sort of other sort of, of malicious activity. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the data that you and your team uh, get sent. I mean, I think, you know, we hear uh, a lot of folks complain that you can find yourself with a fire hose of information and it's hard to to filter through with a lot of, uh, you know, products that, that are signaling you that, th- that are things are going on in the network. I mean, how are you able to dial in to make sure that you're seeing the things you need to see, but that they're prioritized properly? So they've got... Um and I'm just going to refer to it as a, the brain, and I'm sure Steve can use whatever, correct me with that, whatever the technical jargon is if, if I'm misspeaking. But so the brain's already trained in a Windows environment. It knows what a lot of the stuff is. I, I'll give you a couple examples. Um, so any security tool that you put in your environment, you've got to establish a baseline. So what we did is we ran for 60 days without it actually stepping in and doing anything. Um, you know, after we got it rolled out in a major way. I mean, during the initial proof of concept, we were testing the, you know, the, the blocking of the exes from running and, and all that good stuff. But when we initially rolled it out across the board, we just wanted to monitor. Uh, let's see what's going on. And once we were felt comfortable with it, then we just started turning it on and saying, all right, when you find bad stuff, let us know. The first thing that it found that it reported as uh, potential malware was um, a little thing called OneDrive. From Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it did, which is fascinating to me, is did you know that Microsoft will try to install that thing at like seven or eight different locations? You want to install it? Microsoft says, no, no, we want it installed. It'll reinstall <laughs> it. And, and it'll install it all over the place. So that was mm-hmm. the, since I've been running this thing for like eight months, that's the only real false positive I've had. Out of the box, I haven't had to train it a lot. We had a couple of custom applications that we had written here in-house and I just had to tell it once that these were custom, and boom, it's magic. Hmm. I can I can add a little bit to that if if, if you like. Uh, yeah, please. I think it's um, and I and and you hit on a really important part there, Matt. And people that are looking at security solutions, I think I think certainly you want to you want to know how accurate it is in identifying malware. Of course, that's that's a really important, you know, and that's that's what's you know obviously known as the efficacy. But almost equally important are those false positives. Because if you have a solution that may, might be really accurate in identifying malware, but, and let's say it generates 100 notifications or alerts, if 50 of them are also false positives, I mean, you're really going to be draining your resources, filtering through false positives all the time. And this does happen a lot of times, especially with your next-gen solutions that are using uh, not deep learning, but machine learning. Uh, machine learning is pr- more prone to false positives and the way that it's identifying malicious files compared to deep learning. So what Matt was describing is his experience is very common, very low false positives. You apply a few exclusions 
for custom applications or or things that you're going to be running in your environment, and you're you're going to be pretty much good to go. You know, and again, like as Matt mentioned, the brain has already been trained because if you, I'll just real quick again, just to reinforce, if you try to train a deep learning brain on any machine, it wouldn't be able to do it. It requires a ton of horsepower to do that. We do that in the cloud using NVIDIA GPUs. It's a big investment that we make, but it enables us to deliver this pre-trained brain that is really high in efficacy and delivers, I mean, and from our experience, really low false positives. I haven't seen anything like this before in my hmm. career. Yeah, I have to ask you, Matt. Uh, I, well, I, I remember when my oldest child was coming up through school and my wife and I were, you know, pondering what sorts of uh, parental controls to put on our computer and so on and so forth. I remember us saying that, you know, you know, the two of us together might be able to outsmart him, but there's there's very little chance that we're going to outsmart him and all of his friends. That, you know, the kids tend to crowdsource solutions to things. Have you had to deal with any of your, your clever students trying to, to run an end run around a, any systems like this? Pretty much every day. Um, <laughs> yeah, so my philosophy shifted quite a bit over the last couple of years. And I teach cybersecurity at the local community college. So mm. I'm, you know, pretty focused on this stuff. In the last couple of years, my, my philosophy has shifted to not if, but completely when. Like, it's going to happen. How bad is it going to hit me? And what am I going to need to do to recover? And if you're not saying that to yourself, you're kidding yourself. Because it is just a matter of time. Because these kids, you know, they come to school for seven and a half hours a day. They go home and they've got 10, 12 hours before they have to do anything. And uh, they got lots of time to watch YouTube and to try things. And their network at home isn't big enough to test this stuff on. So they're bringing it in and testing it on my network. And they do it all the time. Now, I've got a lot of good tools in place to stop it. Um, and it's definitely stopped any of their attempts at, you know, infecting the network. But when they try to circumnavigate the network security or they try to bring in an application on a thumb drive and run it to try to land, launch a denial of service, I'll give you an example. Is last year... I had a group of seventh graders, seventh graders, who'd watched a YouTube video on how to bring down the school network by launching a denial of service attack program. So they were part of the computer club that met right after the end of school day every day. So they're in their little group and they're trying to launch this program. The advisor for the club is monitoring them with our classroom management software. And it says in the bottom right-hand corner, you're currently being monitored by Mr. McNulty. And they were trying anyway. And he's sitting there just taking one screenshot after another, right? And the stuff that I have in place just stopped it. It just didn't happen. And they were really pissed off that it didn't work. <laughs> but I brought in the parents the next day, and the one guy's, you know, one kid's father is a, is a CIO of a, a private company. And he's like, look, you know, my son's really smart. He would never be so stupid to do this. I, you know, I can't even believe I'm here. You've got the wrong kid. So I handed him the screenshots, and I said, pretty sure this is your son. And he's like, oh, that's not my son. I don't know who it is. You can do whatever you want to that kid. Um, and he was also unaware about the third-degree felony in Pennsylvania. And I showed that to him. And he goes, well, you're not going to turn these kids over to the police, are you? And I said, no, that's not our intention. And I said, your willingness to work with us really drives that. Um, I've been here 16 years, and only once have we had a kid removed in handcuffs. So, um, and that's when the parents were very, they were in denial. They weren't even remotely interested in anything we had to say, and they didn't think his, their son had done anything wrong. Hmm. Yeah, 
I mean, I suppose a big part of this for you as educators is is channeling that energy, channeling those, uh, you know, the gifts that those kids have uh, towards good directions. Yeah, trying to redirect that energy into a positive direction instead of a negative direction. Our thanks to Steve Salinas from Deep Instinct and Matthew Fredrickson from Council Rock School District for joining us. CyberWire X is a production of The CyberWire and is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity startups and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. <laughs>